All right, thanks everyone for sharing. How many of you guys feel like um, God hates sin is like kind of a negative thing, like a bad thing? Can you guys raise your hand? Anyone? Anyone feel like apathetic about it? Like, uh, just, it feels awkward. Anyone? Anyone feel like, oh, that's a really good thing that God hates sin? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, appreciate, appreciate, appreciate your uh, feedback. You know, I was uh, dropping off Liam at preschool, and he walks up, and there's like four or five different trucks in front of him, and these two boys were playing with it, but they walked away. And so he walks up to the trucks, and he's playing with it, and the two boys come back, and they're really mad at Liam. And they basically like preschool jumped him. It was like terrible. I was watching through the window, right? One of the kids walk up, he's like, mine! And he like pushes Liam. And Liam still looks like a baby. Like other preschoolers kind of skinny out. But Liam just looks like a big, fat, tall, giant baby. So like my baby's getting pushed. But then the worst part was that it was like two on one. That's what made it really disturbing. So he got pushed by one kid and then the other kid tries to hit him. I was like, oh my gosh. And Liam steps back and he pushes the kid who pushed him. But he doesn't push that hard. And then the other kid just shoves him and he starts, he's on the floor crying. And I'm like, this was the worst day of my life, you know? So I yelled through the window, no pushing! And then and I just, like, got desperate. And then the teacher runs over, and I run over. And, like, I swear in my heart, that whole day, I, I just apologize for this. I just, I just envisioned kneeing preschoolers the whole day. It's a terrible thing, right? Just, like, boom, boom, like, saving my child. It's kind of like a giant superhero, if you think about it. But of course, I came around, I'm like, I, I wouldn't really need preschoolers in the face because I'd go to jail, and it's just a terrible thing. But then, but then, you know, I love Liam so much that it's so hard to see him hurt. And even, but it, it, when you see other kids hurt your kid, you're just like, you kind of get it, and Liam kind of does the same thing. But it would be like really horrific and deeply angry if an adult hurt Liam, Right? It would just be the worst thing if, if, if that happened and, and it was malicious. I would just kind of stop and pray for that person because Nina would just destroy them. She would like, she would kill them. So I'm like, may God have mercy on your soul. And I would just watch Leah, Nina kill this person immediately. And, and the reason is because we, we love, um, the more we love something, the deeper we hate evil done to it. Right? And so this is what Jesus is saying as he, as he goes through this passage. We see his deep hatred for sin and also his deep love for the vulnerable. And I would suggest to you that if you don't really love something, you won't really hate the evil done to it. And, and we find that when we're scrolling through our news feed and someone's trying to bear, bring up awareness. So you see these really graphic things and sometimes you just feel detached. Sometimes you're like, oh, that's just someone else something else, some other person's pain. And I think it, the, the depth of your hate speaks to the depth of your love. But when you love something or someone deeply, you hate the damage done to it. You hate its harm. And so when we look at this passage, it's, it's pretty dark. It's really heavy. But as we think about the depth of hate, we also think about the depth of love. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, 
it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. So here Jesus starts in chapter 18, as uh, Pastor Christy shared, about he brings up a little child and he says, these are the greatest in God's kingdom. Those who are dependent on the Father, those who are humble, those who take the lowly position. But then he talks about his immense care, not only for the child, but notice when he says these little ones, he's speaking about, he's broadening the category of not only children, but those who are vulnerable, those who are overlooked, those are, who are easy to be taken advantage of. And then he uses really graphic terms, this idea of tying this huge stone around your neck, right? And then jumping into a lake so that you drown and you have no way of escape. That's, that's graphic. And then he says, woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So again, we think about how the more you love someone, the deeper you hate their harm. And we look at Jesus' love for the vulnerable. And we see that Jesus, when we welcome them, it's like we're welcoming Jesus. He equivocates their care and maybe also their pain to directly caring for Jesus or causing him pain. And I wonder if we think that way. I wonder if we look around the room and we see people who are hurting or people who are isolated or people who are more quiet and we say, man, if I reach out to this person, I'm reaching out to Jesus. Those are the eyes of the Christian because we know that he has special care and concern for those who are vulnerable. And then we see that their angels hang out with the Father. Often God wants a report from his angels about how these little ones are doing that he has special care and concern for them. He gives them special attention. And then also their dependence and humility makes them great in God's kingdom. And in the same weight that he loves the vulnerable, so he also hates the abuse of the vulnerable. In short phrasing, go kill yourself. I mean, that's, that's kind of... Did you ever think Jesus would say that, go kill yourself? That's like kind of crazy, right? But it's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to kind of awaken us to know the gravity of sin. Then he says, woe to you. And he, he curses or he wants them to have groans of suffering. And then he talks about um, cutting off limbs. Those, that's the way and the depth of Jesus' hatred towards sin. But I think we've all seen sin in which we feel that kind of violence towards. Some of us have maybe many of us have experienced sin in a way where we hate this person or what's been done to us to this degree. And so there's a real touch in reality. Jesus deeply hates 
the way that the vulnerable and the young are taken advantage of. But even him, he grieves as he says, these things will happen. And we think about the, the depths of evil that has happened in our lives or in the lives of others. And then we acknowledge also with that the love that Jesus has for the vulnerable and his hatred towards their pain and their hurt. But God not only hates the, the sin of, of kind of these people we're talking about, but he also hates the sin in our own lives because he deeply loves us. Sin separates us from God. We think about the first time Adam and Eve sinned, right? They had been walking with God in the coolness of the day. They saw God face to face. They had intimate, close relationship with God. He wasn't far away. They could reach out and touch him. And then sin came and broke our relationship with God. Right when they sinned and rebelled, there was this distance where they hid. And God came out and said, where are you? And it wasn't like a hide-and-go-seek, where are you? It wasn't like he didn't know they were hiding behind a bush. It was a relationship, where are you? It's like when you turn to someone you love, even though they're sitting next to you, and you say, where are you? Because you feel far away. It feels like there's this vast distance between us. And that's the where are you that, that God speaks of. And I, I've heard him say that in my life. When sin rips my relationship with him and, and I'm holding on to this instead of holding on to him, it distracts me or it makes me rebel against him or it consumes my life. And Jesus is like, Wilson, where are you? We also see how sin hurts others, often the most vulnerable. And again, when we go to Eden, right when they sin, uh, Adam and Eve, instead of being naked and vulnerable and, and this trust that they would never hurt each other, they put on clothes, which is symbolic of this kind of emotional and physical barrier of, of distrust. And sin separates us from each other. Sin makes us put on facades. Sin puts us on guard and makes us defensive. And, and, and we don't, we're not vulnerable anymore because we're afraid of being hurt. But also, sin separates us from ourselves. It turns us in on ourselves. Have you been, all of us have, right, addicted to a sin where it starts to consume us, where it's all we see, where it, it consumes our vision, it consumes how we treat others, it consumes every thought. All we want is more of that sin. Well, when I was in Australia, we went to um, a bota botanical garden. Okay. Botanical Garden. I had four ways of pronouncing it. I picked the right one. And uh, they had this really cool display of carnivorous plants. Carnivorous? I'm just kidding. And um, so you walk up to the display, and, and they're explaining uh, these, these plants that kill insects or other, other larger uh, creatures. And all of them use a similar mechanism. They put out this thing that, that seems like nectar, that's sweet to the taste that's appealing, that smells alluring. And these insects come and they eat on it, right? They, they fill themselves with it. But it's not nectar. It's actually digestive fluid. And it's sticky. And so it entraps the animal. And it's not able to escape, but it's okay because it still is able to eat. But when it thinks that's filling themselves, it's actually being eaten 
by this um, sticky substance. And sin has a way of doing that. What we think we're eating is actually eating us. Sin always feels like it's satisfying for a season, right? When we feel, when we're angry, at first we feel empowered. We have control, but then it, it breaks a relationship. It causes someone pain. When we hold on to bitterness, there's something that feels really good about being bitter at first, right? Like it's justified or somehow our bitterness is hurting the person next to us, but then it consumes us. And then we forget how to forgive and we become bitter to everyone. When we fill ourselves with lust, at first it feels pleasurable and then we think about the sin that we've caused another person. And every time we eat out of sin, even though it feels satisfying, it actually creates greater thirst. It actually fractures our soul wider. And it, it makes us more hungry and more thirsty. And then all we can do is consume. Everyone around us is about consuming them. Everything around us is about consuming them. And we turn in on ourselves. Our hunger becomes unsatiable. I know that when I feel cognizant, that's what it, that's what it looks like, right? Everything good becomes about me. And so Jesus gives this homily. He says, if your hand causes you to sin or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eyes causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye and, and have, than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. We think about this passage and we ask, is it supposed to be taken literally? And some people have in the past. Me and Dave talked about this. He said not to use the story because he has bad references, but I'm going to use it anyways, and we'll just say it's fictional, okay? That's what, that way I won't get in trouble later. Um, but I also read recently of an artist who did the same thing, but his story was of a saint or a monk or someone religious, right? They, they, took this, they read this passage, and, um, and they knew they, they just struggled with lust, and they couldn't stop keeping their eyes pure. And so they gouged out their eyes, which is horrific. But the irony is that they realize that even without their eyes, they can still be lustful, right? So the literal, if you just kind of take this to its literal extreme, it doesn't help you necessarily become pure by maining yourself. And so it's a hyperbole. It's speaking about, or it's a metaphor. It's speaking about um, taking sin seriously and having a gravitas to it, a weight to it. It's talking about the urgency of sin. But there is a, an aspect of this passage that's also literal because it's literally better to, to have eternal life than to have all your limbs and go to hell. And so the warning has this literal weight to it, which again is heavy, is daunting, it's sobering. And so here are some of my takeaways. First, I, I think we live in a culture that does not take sin seriously. I'm going to share about uh, my struggle with pornography and sexual addiction. 
I know applies to only a, a, a segment of us, but I hope that you can take these principles and think deeply upon what you struggle with. Because all of us have sin that deeply damages ourselves and others. And so would you allow yourself to go there? You know, it's so easy to look at uh, pornography and to feel justified, um, even as a Christian, right? Every stand-up routine I watch, there's like a huge bit about basically how pornography is okay. And a lot of my, especially college friends, used to watch it. Sometimes they do like viewing parties. It was very normal. And if you go to your workplace or any secular environment, it's like, it's like not a big deal at all. And so as a pastor, I've always felt the weight of it, but I've also been tempted, uh, especially when I was younger, to diminish its value, to kind of say, hey, like, what if I didn't take this as seriously? Everyone else is struggling with this too. And then I went to this conference called Q, and one of the women talked about um, sex trafficking, and it was horrific. She talked about how the laws, because of awareness, got elevated, so the stakes are a lot higher in that world. And because of that, some people have left, but other people have remained there and, and kind of just upped the violence and control. And so there's a woman who left, uh, kind of got rescued from that world, but because of psychological damage, sometimes they go back because it's familiar. And they put her on the street and lit her on fire to show all the other women, this is what happens when you, when you try to walk away. I mean, just horrific. Um, and I remember sitting at the Q&A section, and I kind of looked at her um, with my arms, you know, kind of folded back in the chair in a relaxed position. I said, hey, hypothetically, not me, but let's say a college student, right? I, I was like at least 20 at the time. Let's say a college student um, is watching porn. Can you bridge the gap between this woman who died like that and someone just watching pornography on their screen? Because it feels so disconnected. And maybe just by the, com like the um, conviction of the spirit, she just had these penetrating eyes. She didn't look at anyone else in the room except towards me. It made me deeply uncomfortable. And she said, the same women that are trafficked, are lit on fire, are the same women you see on your screen. And the women that I've rescued say that, that being raped is so less damaging than than being in porn because you feel victimized over and over again. And I just took the weight of that. And I wonder if you've ever bared the weight of your sin because our society says not to. Our society says to diminish it. Our society says it's not a big deal. You know, part of Alcoholics Anonymous is to stare at the people you love and to apologize to them and to listen to the damage you've done because of your alcoholism. And I've seen damage done in every sin, right? Every sin causes deep pain and hurt to the community around us. I've seen gossip isolate people in a church to the point where they walk away. I've seen greed take away a father from his family. I've seen um, anger uh, violently hurt people. 
and addiction ruin lives and families. And, and when someone takes their own life, it devastates everyone around them. Every sin leads to our death and the death of others. And have we been willing to sit with that? Because if we don't take our sins seriously, we are not going to be willing to do whatever it takes to cut it out of our lives. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Do whatever it takes to cut out sin because it's poisonous, because it will consume you, because it will hurt the vulnerable in your life. And, uh, and when we cut it out, there's pain, right? We should expect pain when it feels like we're cutting off a limb. And I've uh, tried my best and the best of my power to cut off pornography out of my life. So I've like neutered my phone, you know, it's in, there's, there's so many websites. They're like, hey, go on YouTube. I'm like, I can't, like it doesn't work on my phone. And I remember uh, my laptop has all kinds of, of um, protections on it. But it's embarrassing at times. I remember preaching, and they hooked on my laptop, and then, like, Net Nanny came on because they were trying to pull up a video. I'm like, yeah, I've, I struggle with pornography. You know, it, it's, it sucks. Um, it feels like I'm being incapacitated in, in terms of being able to work sometimes. Um, and then recently, I've slept at 9 p.m., which has really helped. And so I've cut out, like, this, like, four hours of my waking life from 9 to like 12 or 1 o'clock, and it's brought such great sobriety into my life. And I feel like when we cut out these things, two things happen. First, there's great boundaries that allow us to play and dance and move. I wonder what are the... Th so when I think about Liam, we've mostly child-proofed our house, and so he doesn't have to worry about being burned. He doesn't have to be worry about being electrocuted. He doesn't have to worry about... Uh, falling, uh, running into the street, right? Because we have all these safeguards. And what does it allow him to do? It allows him to play. It allows him to move and to dance. And if there's things in your life that are unsafe for you, look for ways to remove it. If there's people in your life that are just trying to sleep with you and get you drunk, look for ways to cut them out if you're feeling tempted. If there are... Um, Instagram, you know, people that you follow that just kind of inspire greed or lust or envy, unfollow them. You know, or if they're friends that are just dragging you into drunkenness, look for ways to remove yourself. We need to do everything we can to cut sin out of our life. And I think as we do that, it builds a longing because so much of our sin is about eating something, is about being filled. And so when we cut sin out of our life, there's our hunger starts to take over. And what God is saying is that I want to be the one to satisfy your hunger. I want to be the one to satisfy your thirst. Allow the cross, allow his love to be greater than your thirst. Number three is to know that sin festers in the darkness, so live in the light. And I have this really great accountability group where every week we meet and we just share our, our struggles. When I fall, I text in. And they've brought light into this world. I, for years, I just kind of wrestled with it on my own. And they've been able to extend God's grace and forgiveness to me. I hope that at small group, at this church, we walk in and we see, see four imperfect people only. And we get to all say, hey, I'm imperfect. 
I'm struggling with stuff. I'm broken. And here are the things that I'm wrestling with. I hope small group isn't a place where we just kind of like move around all the things that are most uh, painful in our lives, that are most destroying our soul, and we don't talk about that. And we just, sit, we just talk about all the things that feel sterile and okay. I pray that we would have a church where we are known and we feel like we can share what we're hurting with the most and we can walk with each other in that. And as we allow light to shine on our darkness, that's how we're healed. James talks about how we are to confess our sins to one another because the prayer of a righteous man and woman is powerful. And I think that every Sunday we can come in at every Sunday, some of us are in this room, many of us are in this room, and we feel in bondage to sin. We feel the weight of it. And we just hope that this one thing is the thing that we can be prayed for, that could be addressed in our life. And that's why we have people lined up on the side during communion. Because we want to pray for that one thing that feels heavy to you, that feels weighty, that has you captive. We want to pray for God to liberate you. And I hope that you would take advantage of that moment. Lastly, allow the cross to be more gruesome than your sin and his love to be greater than your thirst. You know, when I think about my sin, it's hard to sit with the weight of that, to think of the ways that it's damaged people. And we avoid that. We try to lessen um, the gravity of our sin all the time and justify it and compare it to someone else and say, oh, I'm not as bad as that person. Or this sin is really secretive and no one's being hurt. But I think that the cross and how grotesque it is allows us to see the depth of our sin and the weight of it. Because we can say our sin sucks, it's hurt people, and it's deeply, uh, it's deeply evil because we see the way that Jesus paid for our sins. So we can live in the reality of our sin and say that his grace and his sacrifice is enough. Jesus takes the millstone in the form of a, of a cross, and he dies for our worst sins. He takes the cutting of limbs in the form of lashes and nails and a spear, and he says that I will have my body, body cut so that you can have my righteousness. I pray that we would be able to receive his forgiveness and to know that this is the starting point of us being liberated from the sinner in our life, being able to see its evil and, and feel its weight, but bring it to the cross and see that Jesus carries our sin up to Calvary. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like one of these people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. God, this morning, we come to you, a sinner, asking for your mercy. I come to you, a sinner, asking God for your mercy. I think about how that's the first prayer we pray when we walk into the Christian faith. And I wonder if some of us are willing to pray that prayer this morning. That we're willing to say that our sin is heavy and deep. That in our worst moments, we've done deep damage to others. And that we need the forgiveness of Jesus. And I also think about the thousands of other times I prayed this prayer and how it's defined my Christian journey. That God, I'm a sinner and I need your grace. This morning, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. If you're willing, if you don't see yourself as good enough or righteous, but like me, you see yourself as a sinner, Maybe it's your first time praying it. Maybe it's your 10,000th time praying it. But I, I know that God wants to extend his forgiveness and love to you. And to have you free from, the, from death because he took it for you. Free from shame because he took it for you. Free from lashing yourself because he took it for you. And he wants to gift us righteousness. If you're willing, would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. That I've done things that hurt the most vulnerable. I pray that you would forgive me. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. And I thank you for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your first time praying to prayer, I just want to welcome you into being a Christian, that that's what being a Christian is all about. I'd love to talk to you and pray for you today. And lastly, we just kind of um, think about communion, and um, we again participate in Jesus giving his life for us, that he shed his blood on the cross and his body was broken. So I invite you to take communion if you've prayed that prayer, whether it's your first time or a thousand, that he forgives you. You don't have to diminish the weight of your sin. You can sit in the hardest and darkest moments and know that Jesus forgives even that sin. 
Even if it was worth death, Jesus says, I paid that price for you. Would we receive his forgiveness today and desire to fight sin and cut it out of our lives? Um, Dr. Ken and Chrissy, Dave and Joanne, the Whitmores, myself, we would love to pray for you. If you've been struggling with the sin for a long time, or if you've done something that you just can't shake in your life, would you follow James, James's instruction, and today confess your sin to one of us? We want to pray for you. That's always kind of been my envy of the Catholic Church, that they had this confession booth. I'm like, man, if there was a confession booth at my church, I would go there every week. And that's why we set up this prayer thing, because I know that I need prayer, and I know that you need prayer. Will we all rise and take communion today?